Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans, and today I have a great surprise for you all. Hey guys, it's Kelsey Bowler, and I am back. Uh, If you don't know me, I am one of the former co-hosts of Problematic Women. I am currently a senior policy analyst at Independent Women's Forum, and I haven't left you all yet. I am still a contributor here at The Daily Signal. We can't let you leave, Kelsey. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. So it has been, of course, a busy, crazy COVID week. Uh, We are all very grateful that President Trump appears to be doing okay, and we continue to pray for all those who have been affected by the virus, many of them who work in or around the White House. Lauren, what are we going to talk about today? Up on today's Problematic Women, we talk with Mary Vogt about the concern of religious tests during Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearing. Then we discuss how an overreaching California regulation is hurting small businesses. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Women of the Week. Each week here on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and encourage others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. Welcome back to the show. We have a real treat for you today. We have Mary Vogt. She is a former colleague of ours at Heritage, mother of two beautiful little girls, and wife to OMB director Russ Vogt. Mary, I don't know where you find the time, but you wrote a really great article this weekend called The Secular Left, Democrats Can't Impose a Religious Test on Amy Coney Barrett. So I want to start, because this is a, a personal issue for you, your husband face some scrutiny over his religious beliefs in a similar confirmation hearing. Can you tell us about that and the effect that it had on your family? Yes, definitely. Thank you guys both for having me here today. I really appreciate it. Um, In 2017, my husband, Russ Vogt, he had been nominated to serve as deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget. And so during his confirmation hearing before the Senate uh, Budget Committee, he was personally attacked for his religious beliefs. Um, Senator Bernie Sanders went after him for his Christian faith. Uh, Years prior, Russ had written an article defending his faith and basically laying out what Christians believe, that in order to have salvation, you must believe in Jesus Christ. And that did not sit well with Senator Sanders. And so he started to attack my husband over it. And he said he wasn't fit to serve in the position that he was being nominated for. And he said, quote, this nominee is really not someone who is what this country is supposed to be about. So he applied an unconstitutional religious test to my husband, which, according to the Constitution, Article 6, Section 3, it's not supposed to happen. No religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. And so we did receive a whole host of support from people from all walks of life, all parties and all faiths, which was great and encouraging. But it was just really unfortunate to see an elected official that had taken an oath to defend the Constitution was then violating it 
and attacking my husband for his personally held beliefs. So Mary, this isn't the first time that Amy Coney Barrett is facing these types of attacks. She actually already went through a Senate confirmation hearing where she was famously told by Senator Dianne Feinstein from California that, quote, the dogma lives loudly within you. Can you tell us more about the safeguards that the founder set up to protect against this type of religious test? And if it is unconstitutional, which you just explained, why are these attacks still allowed? That's a really, really good question. I think we've seen a lot from the left and from Democrats that they just go by their own playbook. And it's unfortunate and a very scary precedent for the United States, because like I said, they took an oath to defend the Constitution. And so it's unconstitutional to bring this religious test to individuals that want to serve. And it it causes a whole host of issues for the country. I mean, one being that it really reduces the spectrum of people that would serve in these positions because someone who has maybe a a less well-known religious belief or experience, they'll be less likely to serve in the positions, which means less diversity in government, which is something that the Democrats always seem to be say that they're about. Um, It also, and this is probably the most critical thing, is that it discourages high qualified, talented individuals from seeking government positions in the first place. Who in the, who's going to want to put their whole life out there to be attacked for their religious beliefs um, when you see what's happening to other individuals? I mean, it's hard. They go after your family. People went after the children that Amy Coney Barrett adopted. It's ridiculous. And so regardless of party, as an American, as a taxpayer, you really want to have the most high qualified, the most talented individuals representing you in the highest form of government. But when the Democrats put forward these unconstitutional tests, it makes people like that unwilling to step up to the plate and not willing to serve the country. Yeah, that's such an interesting argument that you make. You know, the more that you focus on one aspect of a judge's life, and, you know, even if it is unconstitutional to focus on that aspect of a judge's life, you miss out on the full picture of who that judge is. So can you kind of just unpack that a little bit more? And what should we be looking for in a judge? Yeah, exactly. And let's be honest, we wouldn't be having this discussion at all. And the Democrats wouldn't be attacking her if she was liberal. It's only because she is conservative that they're going after her. I mean, and that's unfortunate because I think the American people want to see her qualifications and want to see that she will be unpartial, that she will apply things to the Constitution, that she will read and determine on cases in an unbiased and in a fair way. And that's that's the oath that she that's what she said she would do. And that's the oath that she says that she will uphold. And so Americans want to be able to see her qualifications, what how she's taken positions in the past that she won't apply her faith um, with those with those decisions. But unfortunately, they're not getting to see any of that because we're just seeing these attacks from the left on her. And I feel like it's a missed opportunity because the public wants to understand how she will serve as a judge. And they're not getting that because instead, the Democrats want to play politics. And Mary, I'm curious after what happened to your husband and what happened during Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation process, what you're expecting for Amy Coney Barrett, do you expect these same types of religious faith-based attacks 
uh, you know, we've, we've seen them go pretty low already, at least, you know, on Twitter. What can we actually expect from the senators who are a part of this confirmation hearing? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you already addressed it that in 2017, when she was going through a confirmation hearing for the Seventh uh, Circuit Court of Appeals, she was already faced harsh questioning about her faith. I mean, like you said, Diane Feinstein infamously said, the dogma lives loudly within you. And many of us on this side have some very uncomfortable feelings about you pertaining to your faith. And even Senator Dick Durbin questioned whether she considered herself to be an Orthodox Catholic or not. So I think what they did to her in 2017, what they did to my husband in 2017, what we saw them so brazenly and unfairly do to Kavanaugh. I mean, I just think for them, there is no, they don't ever take the gloves off. It's always unjust and unfair, and they want to try to score some political points. So fortunately, she's a very tough individual. I have confidence in her and her ability to, I mean, she has seven kids, for gosh sakes. I have two, and I know how hard that is. (laughs) So I feel like she will be able to deal and wrangle the children of, uh, of the Democrat <laughs> Party quite well. So, so true. <laughs> I have no fears in that. But I just think, yeah, they're going to go after faith and faith. I mean, like I said, they went after her for the adoption, which is just ridiculous. And the other thing is, like, where is Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi? These are two very famous self-proclaimed Catholics who have yet to say anything in defense of her and her faith. And I just think that speaks volumes for where the Democrat Party is today. So next week, let's say you were Senator Vote and you were on (laughs) the Judicial Committee. What sort of questions would you want to pose to Amy Coney Barrett? Yeah, I mean, I would ask her about past cases that she ruled over anything that I thought was in question or wasn't clear. I think that that's what the American people would want to hear. I would ask her about, you know, how she plans to rule as a judge, what her philosophy is for ruling on these cases, why she wants to serve. Um, So those are the type of questions that I would ask her and delve into more of those cases that she that she ruled on. But I don't really think we're going to see that. I think we could see that from some of the Republicans, but I don't think we're going to see that from the Democrats. I think they're going to dig into religious groups that she was a part of or meetings that she did or her faith or things about Catholicism, um, which is just unfortunate. Like I said, the American people want to know about her and her background and what makes her qualified to serve in the highest court. And I just I don't think we're going to see that from the Democrats. And one line of attack that we have seen very prominent by Democrats is uh, related to the Affordable Care Act and mm-hmm. healthcare, and yeah. uh, this idea that Amy Coney Barrett could be a unique danger to Americans' healthcare. Uh, we wanted to ask you about this. Um, it is it is personal if you're willing to share, but I know you um, are an outspoken advocate for. Uh, specifically children with pre-existing conditions. One of your daughters Mm -hmm. has cystic fibrosis. So you know the struggles that uh, American families face when it comes to dealing with um, very costly healthcare treatments. And so first off, do you think that attack about Amy Coney Barrett is fair? 
And um, second off, what are you willing to share anything about your experience navigating the healthcare system? You know, the changes that we've seen under the Trump administration um, in in your daughter's fight with cystic fibrosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I don't think that attack is fair. Everything that we've seen from Amy Coney Barrett's record is that she is unbiased and she's very just in her rulings. And again, it just seems like the Democrats are trying to throw whatever they can at her and see what sticks, which is unfortunate. Um, Yes. So like you said, my youngest daughter, she has a life-threatening genetic condition, cystic fibrosis. And it's funny because you, you know, in these spaces, you look at healthcare policy and tax policy and things like that one way, but when it personally affects you and when you're on the phone for hours dealing with insurance, trying to get them to cover a medication or dealing with doctors or pharmacists, it definitely affects you a different way. And it really makes you appreciate the idea of healthcare freedom and that government should get out of the way of families and individuals and their healthcare choices and allow them to make the choices that best fit their family. Each family is different. Each child is different. All of their needs are different. And I think the, this president, and as you said, I've published a lot of pieces on this, but he's done a really great job of just standing up for the weakest among us and wanting, allowing families to choose healthcare options for themselves, um, particularly when it comes to the FDA and cutting red tape and fast tracking some of these medications. My daughter started this new drug this last year that really helps to correct the cystic fibrosis gene that she has. And there is another one that is coming out this year that will fundamentally change her life, her life expectancy. And uh, the Washington Post called it last year a miracle drug for people with CF. And they listed it in as one of the top 19 things that happened in 2019. And I have no doubt that this is because of President Trump and his leadership. By pushing the FDA to act quickly, by fast tracking these drugs, by you know, making sure generics are available to people who can't afford it. I mean, we even saw this with right to try. Why can't individuals who are terminally ill have the right to be able to try an experimental drug that is past the most strenuous phase of approval with FDA? It's absolutely ludicrous that 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 law hadn't been signed prior to President Trump. And so just as a mother constantly advocating for my child, I think, Everything that he's doing um, has been so helpful and so important, particularly when you see how it affects an individual and how you just, as a mother, want to protect and encourage and just defend your child at all costs. So I'm, I'm grateful to him for that. Well, Mary, well, that is, you know, such great news about the drug. And, you know, I know your daughter is in Kelsey and I's prayers, and I hope Uh, Our whole audience keeps her in their thoughts and prayers. But Mary, thank you so much for the work that you do with judges and with healthcare. It's just so important what your family sacrifices and and does for our country. But before we let you go, we love to ask all of our guests this one question, and that is whether or not you consider yourself a feminist and why. I would probably consider myself a freedom feminist. (laughs) Obviously, any conservative ideal or policy uh, promotes freedom and equality for all people, regardless of what the left says. And so I think when we're pushing conservative ideals, 
freedom that allows individuals to make choices for themselves, that that's true feminism. So I don't know if freedom feminism or freedom feminist is actually a term, <laughs> but that's what I would consider myself because it's, it's when we allow individuals to grow and make these decisions on their own that we as a country are better off. I love that. I think freedom feminists should totally be a thing and you <laughs> deserve some credit for coming up with the term. Well, thank you so much, Mary, for sharing your very personal and real experiences, both with the confirmation process and in the healthcare space. Uh, we hope you come back soon. And for all those listening, Lauren and I will be right back to share another story with you about a California law that is leading a mother of three to potentially have to shut down her business. Stay tuned. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Canaparo. And if you want to understand what's happening at the Supreme Court, be sure to check out SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast. We take a look at the cases, the personalities, and the gossip at the highest court in the land. It's SCOTUS 101. All right, we are back. And Lauren, I now want to talk to you about an issue I have been covering very closely for Independent Women's Forum. And that is this new California law called AB5. AB5 took effect at the beginning of this year. And what it does is really take away the ability of individuals in California to work as freelance or contract workers. For some perspective, uh, across the country, one in five jobs in America is held by an independent contractor. Nearly 75% of contractors are working independently by choice. From translators to artists to yoga instructors, thousands of Californians have already lost contracts and vital income since the start of 2020, even before the pandemic got started. And what this law does is mandates what's known as the ABC test that workers must undergo in order to have the ability to do contract work. And what's happening is that ABC test requires that if you are working as a freelance worker, your job cannot be outside of the general area of business that the entity hiring you conducts. So for example, if you run a small flower shop and you uh, want to hire some freelance moms on the side to help you fulfill orders for a wedding on occasion, one weekend, or maybe a couple times a year, you're not able to do that because of course, what that freelance worker would be doing is putting together flower arrangements for a flower shop. This actually isn't a hypothetical example. This is a real-life story of what a, a Hispanic woman named Monica Wyman is experiencing in California. She lives right outside of San Diego, California. And her story started two decades ago during the Obama era Great Recession, where she was a mother of three. She had a 10-year lapse in work experience and no college degree because it was a recession. And then this on top of it, she really couldn't find a job anywhere. She told me that 
her local Starbucks wouldn't even hire her. She eventually convinced a small flower shop nearby to hire her at minimum wage. And she enjoyed it so much and was seeing a lot of customers walk in asking for flower arrangements for their weddings. And the flower shop owner, her boss, kept having to decline those orders because she didn't have interest in doing uh, weddings and special events. It's kind of a whole nother beast. If you ever have gotten married before, you know what I'm talking about. So Monica decided to start her own business with the grace of her former employer, and she named it RSVP Flora Design. And the flexibility was amazing for her. She was able to financially contribute to her household, her three children who she uh, wanted to be able to help put through college. Uh, She was still able to pick them up from school uh, after in between work. And she was also able to employ other moms on the side who wanted flexible part-time work. It was really the perfect arrangement because a lot of mothers who she knew wanted some work. They too enjoyed flower design, but they didn't want the commitment of a nine-to-five job because they wanted to be there for their family. So she would hire them on occasion to help her for these weddings. And then in 2016, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She faced losing her small business. It was really because of this flexible schedule that she had and her ability to hire freelancers to step in and help sustain her business that RSVP Floor Design was able to survive her three-year battle. So today, after beating breast cancer, Monica now faces the prospect of losing her business to something else. And that is California's AB5. Again, AB5 requires Monica to hire her freelance workers as formal traditional W-2 employees with benefits because weddings are sporadic and seasonal. Monica does not have enough work to hire traditional employees. I was just speaking with her recently and learned that just a few weeks ago, she had to go another surgery related to her fight with breast cancer. And California Assembly Bill 5, AB5, would not allow her to hire in freelance workers to cover for her while she was in surgery and recovery. So she is stretched very thin right now, and she is now confronting the reality that she might have to close her doors. Lauren, I want to get your reaction to her story, but before I do, here's a quick clip so you can all hear from Monica herself. AB5, the way it's written, literally rips the opportunity out of our hands to be able to work. It dictates when you will work, who you will work for. There is no freedom of choice in that. If my business comes to a halt because of AB5, I guarantee you I will do everything I can to be a voice against it, and I will do everything I can to be a voice for others who are impacted by this. It's taken so much already from so many, and we can't let this be the end of small business. We just can't. I'm Monica Wyman. I'm a florist, and this is my story of chasing work. 
So Lauren, I know I've been in the thick of things covering AB5, but because it's not a national law yet, it is just a California law right now, I fear that a lot of Americans don't even know it exists. Um, Are you familiar with it? And have you um, heard anything about the fact that there actually is legislation uh, very similar to AB5 floating at the federal level? It actually It was already passed by the U.S. House of Representatives. Kelsey, I've heard a little bit about it. I I really appreciate your rundown and definitely lots to digest there. And my my first thought is, can we leave the florist alone? I'm thinking about (laughs) this woman and then Baronelle Stutzman, uh, you know, the religious freedom case. (laughs) I never thought about that. That's so true. What is it with small flower shops that... The government won't let stay in business. <laughs> we need more flowers in our life, Kelsey. Right. But yeah, I think I've heard this a lot. Um, you know, it, it's going to shut down Uber. It's going to, re- you know, really mess up ride sharing. But I love this example that you found and that really brings to life this the small businesswoman. And, and I love her business model of, you know, having moms and, and people who can't work full time, you know, maybe they have kids at home, they have other uh, priorities, but you know, they want to work here and there and they're able to work. And, you know, we should empower people to work. And, and you know, nobody's being forced to take these jobs, you know, nobody's being forced to, to you know, they could go out and get full time jobs if they wanted to, but this is what works for them. So, and then you, you add on top of it, you mentioned at the top of the segment, Kelsey, that we're in COVID times. I mean, we're in unseen unemployment and these regulations are, are killing jobs. Uh, it's just such an important issue to bring up and to talk about. Yeah. And you bring up a really important point there. Um you know, and it makes me want to provide listeners with a little more background because you might listen to Monica's story and think, why would this ever become a law? What was the motivation behind it? And it was because of uh, these large companies like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and Postmate uh, that the uh, California lawmakers allege uh, were kind of cheating them out of benefits. So say you have an Uber driver who basically uh, by his or her choice was working full time, but because they were hired as a contract worker and not a traditional employee, uh, they could basically work full time and not have access to any employment benefits, health care, and other forms of protections. So, uh, you know, California lawmakers decided to target the gig economy and force these companies to provide these very expensive benefits. And I think there's room to have a conversation there that if somebody is driving uh, 40, 50, 60 hours a week for a company like Uber, should they have access to benefits? And I think that is an argument that a lot of these uh, major gig economy employers have been listening to. Uh, We've seen the head of Uber uh, actually, you know, talk about this issue in the New York Times and say they are willing to have this conversation. And they presented a model, a different path to provide employees who want access to those benefits access. But the truth of the matter is a lot of independent contract 
freelance workers work in the gig economy by choice. A lot of them don't need or want access to these expensive benefits. They value the freedom that freelance work gives them more than these benefits. Some of them might have access to these benefits by another family member. And many of them say, you know, they are very happy and fulfilled and satisfied with their freelance work. And what the California government is essentially telling them is, no, you you have to choose between working a traditional nine to five job with full benefits or don't work at all. And I think of so many, it it affects everyone, but I specifically think of working moms, uh, you know, like, like those that Monica hired to help her with special events who don't want to work a nine to five job, they have access to benefits through their husbands. They just want to be able to financially contribute to their family and find some sort of career or part-time gig that they find personally fulfilling. And California is saying, no, you can't do that. You you have to choose one or the other. And to me, it is so backwards. It is so anti-feminist because the entire feminist movement was supposed to be about enabling women and giving women access to work. And instead, what this law is doing is reducing options and opportunities for women and men, for that matter, to do just that. So in my opinion, it's completely moving us backwards. And Lauren, I don't know how much you know about this, but this bill, the PRO Act, has already been uh, endorsed and co-sponsored by Senator Kamala Harris. So it is very much relevant to Americans, no matter what state you look in. Everybody needs to kind of pay attention to what's happening in California. Kelsey, would you say this bill is uh, not pro-choice? <laughs> it is the opposite of choice, Lauren. <laughs> Well, Kelsey, thank you so much for bringing up this very important issue. If any of our listeners would like to know more, where can they go ahead and view this documentary? They can head to IWF.org and, uh, you know, you can hear Monica Wyman's story. And we will also drop the YouTube link in the show notes to this podcast. I really encourage you to hear her story because it is a real life example of the ways these Uh, really far left radical policies are impacting real people who are just trying to live their lives and contribute to their family and go after the American dream. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but don't go far. We are going to crown our problematic woman of the week. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. If you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Rachel Del Judas, Kate Trinko, Rob Louie, and myself, Virginia Allen, bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. Welcome back. Now it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to, drum roll please. (laughs) 
Kaylee McEnany, who's problematic because she caught COVID-19 in a statement she wrote after testing negative consistently, including every day since Thursday, which was October 1st. I tested positive for COVID-19 while experiencing no symptoms. She continues later in the statement saying, with my recent positive test, I will begin the quarantine process and will continue working on behalf of the American people remotely. So, Kelsey, this is kind of all of our worst nightmares. You know, she, you get COVID, you, you don't know, you're asymptomatic and, you know, you're, you're, you're being safe, but you're, you could be exposing people. I mean, Kelsey, what do you think? And does she deserve kind of the hate and the backlash that she's been getting for the media for quote unquote putting them in danger? No, it's like, if any essential worker catches COVID, it's not their fault. But if anyone connected to the Trump administration catches it, it's because these essential employees were somehow being deeply irresponsible. Kaylee is, you know, the White House press secretary. It is her job to conduct briefings on behalf of the president. And I guess everybody expects her to do that while wearing a mask when in truth, it is very possible for her to you know, not be wearing a mask and still be doing that safely. You know, I've, I've one tweet pulled up by Slate in the past week. Macney has conducted multiple briefings without a mask on. And, you know, of course, you can only imagine what the press's reaction would be if this were Obama administration officials catching COVID. There'd be deep concern for their health. And instead, that hardly seems relevant how these individuals connected with the Trump administration are doing. I'm very relieved to see Kaylee is mostly asymptomatic by what she's saying. We have to remember uh, she has a young daughter at home. Um, so, you know, I think we're all concerned for that. I, I, I couldn't help but think you know, she clearly has to quarantine. And that would be so difficult to not be able to see my daughter while I'm quarantined. So I I think she deserves far more sympathy than she's getting. She is going to the White House as an essential employee. I know that half this country does not think she is essential, but she, she is. She is deemed an essential employee. And she is out there, you know, taking on these risks in order to work on behalf of all the American people, whether or not you support the president. Well, before we wrap the segment, I do want to read kind of a funny line, at least I thought it was funny, from an article in the Daily Beast, which closed, quote, as the administration's fourth press secretary, McEnany has been a staunch defender of the president's COVID-19 response. I think they meant it as like a dig of like, oh my gosh, She's been, you know, parroting what Trump says and, you know, Trump's the worst and Trump wants everybody to get coronavirus. But literally the statement, when you read it, it's like, yeah, water's wet. She was doing her job. So, (laughs) (laughs) but Kaylee, we hope that you take your your two-week quarantine and you relax and you rest. And we just, we're praying for you, for all the folks in the White House and everyone around America and in the world who are affected by COVID-19 right now, that they, you know, have safe healing and feel better much soon. Hey, Lauren, I am with you, but I will tell you, Kaylee is not relaxing. I saw her on TV uh, quite a few times this week, so she is powering through. Um, But yes, let's pray that her and everyone else are okay. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. 
conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.